Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading is taken from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20. This can be found on page 1148 in the Church Bibles. So that's 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, pages 1148. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Christine, thank you so very much. And if I may just add uh, my welcome to that of Paula's from earlier. It's really lovely to see uh, so many here this evening. Thank you for joining us. And if I may, just a particular uh, word of, of thanks to the youth and uh, I'm really conscious that, you know, it's quite a big ask, actually, to come out and, and to sit and uh, listen to someone like me trying to talk about the body, and uh, these are difficult verses. Um, but just to say that I get it if there are moments when you just sort of begin to kind of lose it and you think, oh, he's just getting a bit boring. That's okay. Just try and bear with me. I promise you that there's some stuff in here that I genuinely think would be of help to you this evening and hopefully, hopefully helpful to all of us as well. So we're going to dig in to this word. Like I acknowledge, this is not easy stuff, and uh, I've been praying all week uh, for you. I've been praying for me that I would speak with grace and with kindness. Paul has set us up this evening just recognizing how challenging it is. Amelia, thank you, so brave and so honest, and we appreciate that. So this is something that we come to, and we come to, do we not, all in a sense that we're, we're broken in this, age, in this space? So let's, let's come with grace and with kindness, but we need the Lord's help, and so join me as we pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is just as pertinent and just as apt today as it was yesterday. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would keep us from distraction and that you would help us to listen carefully to what you would say in your name. Amen. Now, a good slogan is unforgettable. Nike, just do it. L'Oreal, because you're worth it. McDonald's, I'm loving it. Everyone knows I love a good McDonald's. I think it's uh, common knowledge now. Pete Scammon and I, we both love our McDonald's. Now, it seems that slogans have been popular throughout the ages, and we have two here in our opening verses this evening. And we began to see last week that the Corinthians, they had a distorted understanding of the relationship between the body and the soul. And it left them open to far-reaching implications in all sorts of directions, not least with the problem of sexual immorality of sex. And we began to see that this distorted view of the body had deep theological and philosophical foundations. And Paul quotes here in this chapter two slogans that are in use in the church in Corinth to justify their sexual sin. It tells us what they think about sex. The first one there is in verse 12. I have the right to do anything. Sex is about rights. And understandably, Paul immediately follows on by asking, but is it beneficial and is it in control? Is it mastering you? You know, in an age of porn addiction today, it's a great question, isn't it? Is this beneficial? And is it in control of you? But sex is about my rights, they say. And couldn't that have been written yesterday? The Corinthians also think that sex is just an appetite. There, verse 13, you say food for the stomach and stomach for food. In other words, when my body gets hungry, that is a natural appetite. And when my body gets hungry, I do the thing that satisfies my appetite. I help myself to food. And sex is like that, say the Corinthians. Now, my body has a perfectly natural appetite, sexual desire. So how is it wrong, they say, to refuse my body the gratification it needs? In fact, they say more than that. They say, you know, just like it is unhealthy to deny your body food when you are hungry, in the same way, it is a denial and repression to deny your body the fulfillment of a healthy sexual appetite. Saints Corinth, 2,000 years ago. Now, doesn't that sound like today? Rights and appetite. And then there is one more angle in verse 13, there at the end. And God will destroy them both. So they say, look, remember that bodies, food, and stomachs, they're all going to be destroyed. So what is the point about being so concerned about sex anyway? Sex is just something our bodies do. The real you was a soul inside, and the body was the thing that held you back. You know, basically, the rationale was something like this. At the end of your life, your body basically rotted, and they said your, for, your soul would fly, would be freed, and all that will matter then is what you did with your soul, not you do what you did with your body. 
So really, what they're really saying is there are no consequences for the actions that you do with your body. Now, last week, we said something really quite shocking. We said that there are sexual behaviors common in Corinth that have to be given up when you become a Christian. And this week, Paul tells us why. He gives us a Christian view of the body. And he's going to deal with a misunderstanding of the body that has led to a very low view of sex. Because that is what we have here. It's a cheapened view of sex when God ordained sex as the fullest expression of his relationship with human beings, as we will, God willing, see. And to help us sort of get our heads around a Christian view of the body, Paul is going to offer us five principles or five truths. So let's have a look then at the the first truth. The body is for the Lord. The first of the truths that Paul mentions, you'll see there in verse 13, where Paul quotes the Corinthian slogan, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Then he adds, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Your body is meant for Jesus. It's the Lord. You see, the church... In Corinth was minimizing the importance of bodily appetites. If the body wants food, give it food. If the body wants sex, well, give it sex. It really doesn't matter. But here Paul offers an alternative perspective that reshapes how they are to think of the body. He says, our bodies are for the Lord, for the glory of God. Now, some of us will have a really hard time believing that. You see, we think Christianity is intellectual or abstractly spiritual, but Paul insists here how we use our hands and our eyes and our mouths matters. God gave us bodies with which to give him glory. We exist embodied for the glory of the Lord. We are with our bodies to present ourselves, our whole selves, our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Your body, your body in all its frailty and its weakness, its inadequacy and all its imperfections, your body, believer in Jesus Christ, is for Him. It is designed to honor Him and please Him and exalt Him. And so glorify him, even in its brokenness. So when our culture says that our sexual appetites must be met, and to do anything else is oppressive, even self-harming, it's actually the path to freedom to realize that our appetites do not have ultimate claim upon what we do with our bodies. Jesus Christ does. You have a body in order to glorify him. And to him, you are precious. And your body to him is precious. And he is deeply protective towards it. Because it's his. And he values it highly. Now from an early age, our boys had to navigate central London heading off to, on the underground uh, to school from um, basically the age of 11. At uh, weekends, they'd head off to, to sports fixtures. And we happened to live directly under the BT Tower. There you go. 
And so we would say to the boys, if you are ever lost, just head towards the BT Tower. And uh, even from unfamiliar streets uh, throughout the maze of the West End, it is possible to glimpse the BT Tower through the buildings here and there, and then you can find your way home. And as we, we look at these, uh, this passage and these five truths that Paul gives us, he really doesn't elaborate much on each of them. He actually merely mentions them. It's as though <clears throat> if we glimpse them merely through the buildings, uh, but, but, but seeing them, uh, these sort of, if you like, five towers of, of truth, if you like, if we see them, it's as though he's saying, look, simply seeing them, simply glimpsing them ought to be enough to help us navigate our way through the whole issue of the body and its use and its proper dignity. So the first, if you like, of our great towers of truth, a great landmark in this passage, is that the body is for the Lord. So we've glimpsed that. The second is that the body is resurrected. We see that there in verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. You see, our bodies, as Amelia was talking about, have a destiny, not just our souls. The Christian hope is concrete and physical and solid and embodied. Now, I don't suppose many of us think about that terribly often, but the God who raised Jesus bodily from the tomb on the third day did so that he might be the firstborn among the dead, that where he is, we might be also. See, one day, our bodies will mirror the glory of Jesus himself. See, the body is not, not a prison. It's not a, a mere shell to, to house the soul. The body has a dignity and a glory given to it by God. And your body, if you are a Christian, your body is destined for eternity. And so Paul wants us this evening as we read this passage to ask ourselves, how should we think about our bodies here and now? And the ideas of this age that we swim in teach us to fear and despise our bodies a lot of the time. But your body is not a thing of shame or inadequacy or disappointment or failing an ideal, but created by him and for him and for eternity. Now we can experience a sort of, how do you put this, a sort of radical dislocation particularly as we age, between the real me inside, which is about what I think and I feel and I want, and the unreliably fleshy wrapper that the real me has to lug around that is getting older and cannot do the things that it used to be able to do. When I speak, conscious that for some of us, that has hit harder and faster than we would ever have expected. Loss of faculties. Onset of dementia. Or illness that attacks our body. You know, how do we believe this truth? How does it bring comfort when we feel such dissonance between who we are and what our bodies are becoming? Now, when the world demands that our bodies conform to a stereotype of strength and health and beauty, when we demand 
that our bodies conform to a stereotype of health and strength and beauty that leaves no space for the aging process. Isn't it liberating to remember that the body is created for eternity and the correct use of your body is the honor of God? As younger people, we are told sometimes overtly, but often more subtly, that the body must conform to stereotypes of beauty set by the big screen, or by glossy magazines, or by fashion houses. We're told that to be happy, to fit in, to be valuable, we must look a certain way. And God says that is a lie. The idolatry of the body has never been more powerful or prevalent than it is today. And it leaves in its wake a great deal of shame and insecurity, of self-loathing and self-reproach. And as we run through this series, you may want to be putting questions in that question box that's at the the back about this. Now please do put in questions about the, the whole range of body hatred and body shaming, the way that this can express itself in eating disorders, or even about that particularly distressing relationship with your body when you feel the real you is an entirely different gender to the one that your body is expressing. Now, all of those ideas are related directly to what we are saying here, and they matter. And they're personal. And this wants to be a space where we can talk about it and find answers and support one another as a family across all the ages and across all the different experiences. And the reality is, those of us who are older are broken in this space. And we can learn from you as younger people to help us through some of the complexities of this this area. So we work together as God's people to listen and to talk and to care for one another through the pain. And where necessary, if you weep, we will weep with you through all of this. But all of these ideas are related, but tonight we're focusing with what this radical idea of the value of the body will mean for sexual activity and desire. Because you see, that's where Paul is taking this, this idea in this passage. And you can see that it is, I want to suggest to you, potentially huge, huge good news. Can't you? Your body, whatever you feel about it, is not worthless. Unwanted and unimportant. It is really you with an eternal future. Jesus, as we're going to see, wants to buy it. And the Holy Spirit wants to live in it. And it really is amazing. So then, the body is the Lord. The body is resurrected. They're the first two towers of truth we glimpse in this passage. The third, verse 15 to 17, is the body is united with Jesus. Now Paul now highlights that great central doctrine, that great central truth of the Bible, and this is the believer's union with Jesus Christ. Look there at verse 15. Do you not know, he asks, that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Now let that just sink in, just for, just for a moment. Your bodies are members. Not just your soul, not just your mind. Your body, your body is united 
to Christ. Now bear with me. This is one of those moments when I want to say, if you're just losing it a little bit, I want you to gather in and listen to this bit because this is important. I want you to, to do more than glimpses. I want you to, to want you to grasp this. Look at the way there that Paul traces out the implications of what that union for the specific problem the Corinthians were battling in verses 15 to 17. Look at the logic in these verses, would you? He quotes from Genesis chapter 2, which of course is when sex was first introduced and explained in the Bible. And the big idea in these, these few verses here is, is the big idea is unity. And at the end of verse 16, we have Genesis chapter 2, and we read, the two will become one flesh. That is what sex is according to the Bible. And the point here is that the two will become one flesh is all about the unity between a Christian and Jesus which may blow your mind if you've never thought about this before. It's astonishing. But then laid alongside it is an idea that they took entirely casually. Sex is just an appetite in a body that will be thrown away. No, Paul says, sex is not like an appetite. It's not like just eating a roast dinner, but it is like something else. It is like becoming spiritually one with the eternal ruler of the universe. That is what it is like. Now, how is that for an image of what it is to like, what it is like to know Jesus? And if you cast around in all of human experience for the best analogy of what a relationship is, uh, with God is like, then sexual intimacy in a committed, lifelong marriage is the best example that is available. It is the one that comes up again and again throughout our Bibles. And we're going to look at marriage in more detail next week. And Paul even actually uses the same verb there in verse 17 to describe our connection to Christ that he uses in verse 16 to describe the illicit connection some Corinthians are having with prostitutes. He talks about being united, notice, or as one commentator translates it, glued together. So let me ask, let me ask us as, as the family of God, how can a Christian who is glued to Christ, joined to him, body and soul, glibly join himself to a prostitute? How can a Christian join himself to a non-Christian? How can two Christians treat sexual union as a night's disposable entertainment when it has such sacred symbolism and meaning? You see, if you're a Christian, you take Jesus with you into your sex life. It's why sexual sin is profoundly dishonoring to Jesus. Now, this, this unity with Christ has huge implications, but let me just focus on one this evening. Now, there is a slogan that has been used to, to good effect all across the world in the context of the horror of rape culture and sexual abuse. It's a slogan that is far truer than the evil idea it is replacing. And the slogan is, my body, my choice. 
And it's a slogan that really gained momentum during 2011 in Canada after a judge and a police officer both said that the clothes that the woman was wearing implied consent, implied permission for sexual assault. And a whole city of Toronto gathered to say that that is not true. The idea that her body or her body dressed like that belonged to any man that would come around the corner interested in sex was a scandal. And the campaign said, not true. That is her body. Whatever she is wearing, my body, my choice. And given the world that we live in, the sinful world that we live in, sadly, there will be a significant percentage of people here for whom these ideas are not theoretical. People who have been attacked sexually by someone whose actions implied that they thought that your body was theirs. Theirs to do as they wanted. And that is an evil idea. My body, my choice, holds truth. In that your body is not anyone else's. No human being has the right to make choices for you. Categorically, no. But I want to suggest to you, and hear me carefully, that while the slogan is true in what it denies, my choice, not your choice, it is not true enough for the Christian. For the Christian, it goes much further than my body, my choice. For a Christian, it is Jesus' body, Jesus' choice. And Jesus holds to all the truth that no human being has the right to make choices for you and so much more on top. See, he, he wants to protect you from making bad choices yourself for your, as in his body. See, I have responsibility to him for how I use my body. And he cares immensely about how I use it. Can I, can I say that I think that this is a far better thing than for me owning my body? And a far better ethic than to do whatever you like as long as it's consent in the moment. And notice as well that it turns entirely on what kind of person Jesus is. Now it is a terrible idea to be owned by another human being in every single case bar one. Jesus. And if Jesus bought me by offering his own body in sacrifice to pay the penalty for everything I have done wrong, including sexually, then perhaps I can trust that he has only good and only wonderful plans for my body and, I, and his ideas are good for me. Okay, we need to keep moving, uh, but that is my longest point by far. Okay, so we, we've seen then uh, the first of our three towers. And uh, so the body is for the Lord, the body is resurrected, the body is united with Jesus. Then fourthly, the body is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That great truth of the indwelling 
of the Spirit of Christ. Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? And that makes our bodies, as it were, sacred spaces. Now, is that how you, is that how you think about your body? It's a sacred space? God himself inhabiting it? If we do, doesn't that change how we behave, what we do with our bodies? And I found that profoundly challenging, even as I was thinking about it this week. You know, I think about what I eat. You know, as we're thinking about this, it makes you think, doesn't it, about our bodily appetites and whether we indulge them or abuse them or distort them. Imagine it, thinks, imagine it sort of remarks, reminds us also of the, the proneness of our bodies to get hooked. You know, it's a profoundly challenging idea. But also I want to suggest to you that it's also deeply encouraging. See, Paul, in these verses that we've been looking at together both last week and this week, he's calling the Corinthians, as he's calling us, to live a new life. And were he to, to do that without any resource but just our own, we would be in big trouble, wouldn't we? You know, we could not engage in the, the conflict with the old sinful life, that relentless battle with sin and our own energy and strength. There would be none of us with any hope of making any progress in the Christian life. But we are not left to our own resources. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, in your body, so that there is hope for you that you will not be tomorrow and next week and in the days to come who you are today or who you were yesterday. See, He, the Holy Spirit, is at work in each one of us. And he will do that so that we will bring honor and glory to God. That's why there, verse 18, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. And incidentally, just looking at verse 18, when it says that all of the sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. What he's saying there, just as a note, is, is that what will be obvious if you sat down and talked to any group of friends, he's just saying that sexual sins are worse, more guilty. He's saying that they have more to do with the body. That's all he's saying in those verses. Flee. Now, I want to suggest to you that, that flee is a very interesting word. It means a lot in four short letters. Now, I grew up in my youth group with the, with the concept of how far can you go? This was a question that we regularly asked when we had that kind of relationship talk on a Sunday evening after church. The question was, is how far can I go? How near to sex can I go without crossing the line and getting into sin? Which assumes, doesn't it, that teenage boys and girls are good at recognizing where lines are and that it gets easier to resist temptation the closer you get to falling into it. Which I think is quite a silly idea when I think back. It's nothing like flee. Run away. And those of us who have slipped into sexual brokenness know this. That most journeys into sexual sin begin a very long way away. It's about a direction of travel. Journeys that start with late nights on your screen or swiping your way through people you might date 
are running your mind over people you once knew. Why not flee instead? The early church theologian Augustine of Hippo, prior to his conversation, his conversion, sorry, had lived with a, with a prostitute. And early on as a new Christian, he walked past her and she began to follow him and shout after him, so the story goes. And he began to walk faster and faster. And she began to chase him. And he started running until she finally shouted out, Stop! It is I! And he, fleeing at top speed, replied, Yes, but it's no longer I. So Paul has given us then these four great truths, these four great landmarks, if you like, to help us through this whole theology of the body and the complexity that surrounds it in this world, to help us navigate the complexity of all this. But I want to suggest he's saved the best to last. Fifth, the body is redeemed by Christ or the body is paid for by Christ. Verses 19 and 20, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with our bodies. You know, if there's anyone here this evening who is lacking in self-esteem, then this tower of truth is for you. Perhaps the defining idea of our generation is personal autonomy. We've taken the idea of the autonomous self to an entirely new level, even in recent years, haven't we? So now we are told a person can self-identify across lines of gender and sexuality without regard even to their anatomy. A person today is who they determine themselves to be. We invent ourselves in contemporary thought. But that is not how Christians think of themselves. Because you see, we are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We are not free to invent ourselves or define ourselves or identify ourselves however we so please. Rather, as we've seen this evening, we belong to Jesus Christ and he has purchased us. And the imagery here comes from the slave markets of the ancient world. And Paul is saying that while we may boast in our freedom, the truth is... We are slaves to the very things we think demonstrate our liberty. Think about that. Sexual sin in particular. We know this, don't we? It enslaves. It debases and dehumanizes. It objectifies other people and strips, strips them of their dignity. But we, who are by nature slaves to sin, when we become Christians, we're brought into a different kind of relationship. Jesus purchased us with his blood. And under his rule, we find true freedom. You see, you were bought at a price. He leaned in and he selected you and he paid a price and he knew you by name. And so now, this evening, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong to him. You are his. And that is what sets you free. It's what gives you your dignity. It's what gives you your self-esteem. And therefore, Paul says, glorify God with your body. 
You know, one last thought as we finish. You know, I think in our current sex-obsessed world, there is no more powerful statement in terms of honoring and glorifying God than the person who says, I will only use my sexuality in the ways that God intends and commands. And I understand that that may mean not having sex. No, there is no more powerful statement to a world that says you are not alive unless you're having sex. Five great truths. Five great landmarks to help us navigate our way through this complex sexual landscape. So what is the conclusion? Essentially, Paul is saying to each one of us that we are to bend the knee to the Lordship of Christ. Believing that under his rule we find true liberty and true freedom. He wants to say to each one of us tonight, you are mine. Come glorify me with your body. And in Christ Jesus, you can do this. Amen.